Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. Welcome to the Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with my friend Srini Rao, author of Unmistakable Creative and host of a podcast by that same name. You should listen to this episode if you're interested in creativity and want to do something that's more powerful because it's more unique than what everyone else is doing. It seems obvious on its face in many ways, but we'll outline this and we'll get into some detail as we always do. We'll also discuss the power of long-term commitment, avoiding the idea echo chamber, why your goal should be to become the only and not just the best, support systems around being creative, and how to borrow from other works without staying in the realm of what's been done before. So enjoy this one with Srini Rao, and with that, welcome to The Art of Charm. We bring together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, in your relationships, and at work. If you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the toolbox, where we discuss things like body language and nonverbal communication, persuasion, networking, negotiation, mentorship, and everything else we teach here at AOC. In the US, just text CHARMED to 33444, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. Everywhere else, go to theartofcharm.com. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have all the right questions. All right, here's Srini Rao. Srini, tell us what you do in one sentence. I use the internet to make things. <laughs> okay, that's so vague. But you know what? <laughs> you, you did that on purpose because you knew I was going to ask you that, which is great. First of all, what are some of the things that you create or that you make that we should know about? Yeah, so what that means is I write books. I am the host of a show called The Unmistakable Creative where I've interviewed like six or 700 people at this point. We've produced animated shorts based on those interviews. We've created live events and we've done a bunch of other sort of creative projects as well. The theme that kind of ties all of it together, that's why when you asked, what do you do? I was like, I'm not any one of these things because I think labels limit your capacity. So I'm also a speaker, but really under the core of it, I use the internet to make and create things. How dare you not pigeonhole yourself for my convenience? <laughs> I want to back it up and let everybody know, like, we're friends, we go back a ways. So I know a lot about you, you know a lot about me and, and the show and vice versa. And the book that you've created, which is named after your show, Unmistakable Creative, why write a book on creativity? First of all, Hasn't that been done before? Why is this different? And who are you to tell us how to be creative? <laughs> okay, so why write a book on creativity? So let's actually get to the heart of something that you and I, I think, both share in common and something that I think really has created a bond between us is that we both have seen a lot of people, like in podcasting is just one area where we've seen it, where people see something that works, they 
basically go and they try to replicate that thing by doing exactly what the person who has created the thing that works did in hopes of, of creating a similar result. And so as a result, you get this sort of mimicry epidemic that happens. Now, the funny thing is, podcasting is just one of many places where it happens. You see this in, you know, the sort of coaching world, like, you know, people will take a course that teaches them how to become a coach or build an information product. And so suddenly you have all these businesses where the entire core of the business is, this is my business, I'm going to become awesome. And then I'm going to basically create a course to teach you how to become just like me. And so what I kept seeing was this pattern over and over again. And not only that, the results sucked, right? Like there's this sort of so-called guru at the top and nobody is getting the results that the guru is getting. And of course, the person who benefits the most in that whole scenario is the person at the very top because people are just buying into all of this. And so in a lot of ways, it was sort of a frustrating rant. I'm like, you know, there's got to be something better about this that we can be doing, something much more original, something much more creative. And so part of it is looking at people like this when you bring a guest to the Art of Charm, for example, people say, okay, these are experts. These are people that they look up to authorities in their field. And I think what we have to do is move away from looking at the advice of experts as gospel and seeing it as guidance, not looking at it as a map, but really seeing it as a compass and taking elements that work for us, but not every single thing that a person says you should do. Like if you follow anybody's instruction to the letter, at best, what you're going to end up creating is a pale imitation of what they've already made. And at worst, you'll be completely ignored. And the second outcome is happening more and more. So as the world gets noisier and noisier, the idea of doing things that are distinctive, doing things that nobody else could do but you, becomes much more powerful because when you're the only person who does what you do, you no longer have competition because you're not trying to compete with somebody else. You know, you and I were talking about this before we hit record. Often, we are not on lists of podcasts that are listed as the top, you know, whatever podcasts you should listen to. And to me, that's actually not a bad thing. I actually am perfectly happy that we're not on that list because that means you're in a category of your own. You can't be categorized because nobody else does what you do in the way that you do it. I usually cry myself to sleep when I find that stuff out. <laughs> you know, I, I do that in, in private as well. But I mean, you get my point, right? It's not, I'm not looking at what everybody else is doing constantly and trying to replicate the result that they're creating. And so as a result, once in a great while, you and I have overlapping guests, but I choose my guests based on my own morbid curiosity, not on, oh, you know, this is a person who Jordan had, so I should have them too. A lot of people do that. Have you noticed that phenomenon where you have a guest on your show and then like three weeks later, they're on 15 other shows? Yeah, I, well, as somebody who's in the midst of a book launch, I can see why that happens. <laughs> yeah, speaking of that, you can find me on the following 25 podcasts after you hear this. So here's the thing, right? So a book launch aside, I have seen that in other cases where somebody is an awesome guest on one show and they're a person that nobody's ever heard of and next thing you know, they're on 25 shows. And you're kind of like, oh, okay, well, that wasn't very original. But here's the thing, though, is one of the things that I think you and I can do that we do well is that we'll have a conversation on our show that is very different than any of those. You know, I think you go out of your way to do that, as do I. Like, I don't listen to other people's interviews. Like, somebody once said, oh, you know, Tim Ferriss was on this other show, so you should listen to it. And I said, well, why would I do that? I don't want to have the same interview and ask him the same questions. Yeah, of course. But a lot of people do want to do that. Instead of just sort of complaining about those people, which I could do all day, as you well know, what's the power, why is there power in making things that are so unique that nobody else can do them. I mean, it's great that we're unique. What's the difference between this being utilitarian and a good thing and us just saying, I'm a special snowflake, I'm so indie, I'm a podcast hipster, nobody else does what I do. So I think the thing that that brings up is the issue of quality, right? 
like you've been at this for a very, very long time. What, probably the better part of 10 years at this yeah, point. It'll be 10 years in January. Actually, that's coming right up. That's a long ass time to be running a show. And of course, during that time, you've probably gotten better. Like I would imagine that if you compared what you do now to what you did even five years ago, like you probably are gonna cringe. I mean, I cringe at stuff that we did a year or two ago. I get the whole, hey, I'm just a weird special snowflake and I'm weird and, and odd and you know, that's why you should pay attention to me. So the thing with that is that doesn't take into consideration that, wait a minute, there's an audience that needs to be thought about here. If you're trying to reach an audience, Here's what happens as a byproduct of the fact that we have now democratized the ability to create and share ideas with the world. You know, what is it? There are like a million podcasts on iTunes. So what does that do? It completely raises the bar for what your work has to be in order to cut through the noise. So you have a combination of both the quality has to be off the charts and it has to be distinctive. But if you can accomplish both of those things, then you're no longer playing this game of competition and comparison. So it's all about, I hate saying self-esteem, right? Because that's not quite... No, not really. I wouldn't say it's about self-esteem. I would say it's about self-expression, full self-expression. That's really what I would say is because, for example, you've had one of these album covers made for you, right? Like every guest on The Unmistakable Creative gets a custom album cover. There's nothing in any course anywhere that told us to do that. We were like, this would be really cool. Let's do it. And it just became a part of our brand. And eventually, like even when we were building the brand, one of my first thoughts was, okay, this is really kind of vanilla. I don't like it. It looks like too many other websites. It's not really creative. And I was like, well, what if we had Mars Dorian custom illustrate the icons? That would look really cool. And those are things that, again, you know, like I'm not doing those because somebody says I should do them. I'm not doing them because they're going to lead to some sort of outcome. I'm doing those things because that's my idea of full self-expression. Fortunately, there's a really nice connection with the audience that happens because they appreciate it as well. And as a result, you create something that you know other people aren't thinking about doing. How can we improve our ability to do this? Because I think for a lot of people, there's the, the draw to creating things, especially these Me Too businesses, like you said, are that they seem quick and they seem proven and sure, where right now, if you want to start a business and you're sitting at home, you have a regular job or you're a student, you start a business and the one thing you're afraid of is failure. So what do you look for? A proven formula, right? Especially because cut years off the learning curve, it's a proven formula, it's already worked. So not only is it not gonna fail, but I already have a roadmap. Who could ask for more, right? Mm -hmm. Here's the thing, right? Like you've brought up a really good point. So if you look for things that have only been proven to work, like the best possibility that you have is of replicating whatever that thing was that was proven to work. And the worst is that you will basically be completely ignored. Like you'll create a pale imitation of what already exists, which is what so many of these Me Too businesses end up being. And this actually stems from, more than anything, the fear of being wrong, right? The fear that what you do is gonna suck, what you do won't resonate, what you do won't strike a chord. And that fear goes all the way back to when we were kids. Because we've been taught our entire lives from the time we were in school that being wrong is bad, and authority figures who tell you what is right know what they're talking about, and if you do what they say, you will get the result that they have promised. But the thing is, there's so much evidence to the contrary of that, right? If that was the case, every person who read the four-hour work week would be a millionaire and living on a beach somewhere, counting their cash. Tim lives in San Francisco. Yeah, exactly. But I definitely agree with you. I, I mean, what about the commitment level that seems to be lacking with a lot of new people and new endeavors. And I don't mean entrepreneurs necessarily. I'm artists, people who get jobs, people who are studying a certain thing. It seems like the level of commitment people are willing to make, the tolerance for risk is not necessarily there. 
Okay, so the tolerance for risk thing, I think, builds with time. You know, I'm a surfer, so we'll kind of go down that road a little bit. So you don't start out surfing, you know, 50-foot waves at Jaws. That's like a suicide mission. I mean, most people don't even reach that in a lifetime. Like, I'm never going to be Laird Hamilton. Like, I know that for a fact because I'm too late in my life to be able to develop those kinds of skills. So, like, when I started, I would look for, you know, smaller surf days, like two to three feet, you know, and if it was any bigger, I would freak out. Now, I want it to be bigger because I've progressed past that. And there are still days that are beyond my comfort zone. Like if I thought it was going to be 10 to 12 feet where I surf normally, I wouldn't go out because that would be a suicide mission. Like I know I would be a danger to myself and to other people in the water. So risk tolerance is something that actually grows as you do things. You know, Peter Sims wrote this book called Little Bets, which I made reference to in my book. And, you know, little bets are this idea that you make bets, you know, and it came from looking at a number of people who do this. It's, you know, it's kind of like the whole minimum viable product idea. So Chris Rock is the example that comes to mind. So when Chris Rock does a national comedy tour, funny as hell, everybody laughs at every single thing that he says. But the thing that nobody sees is that all that material is actually tested. Like Chris Rock, who is absolutely a master of his craft, goes to open mic nights, like where some schmuck who's trying to make it is also, and he tests material. And some of that material doesn't work. And he keeps testing and testing this material because the thing is he tests the material in a low stakes environment in which the consequences of failure don't really affect you that much. And most people's ideas of the consequences of failure are all imagined anyways, right? Like they think that, you know, I'm gonna say something and it's gonna blow up in my face and I'm gonna die. And of course, what they don't realize is there's so few people who are paying attention to what they're doing that the consequences of something like that are not nearly as bad as they've made them out to be in their head. Now, the commitment to a craft and to longevity and all of that. So I think that we have an incredibly warped perception of longevity because we live in a world where things are possible really, really fast. Like you and I could sit down today knowing everything that we know. Let's say you and I wanted to start another show that was separate from the art of charm, the unmistakable creative. We could have it up and running and available on iTunes by tomorrow morning. Maybe it might take a little longer. The thing with that, is it gets in your head this idea of instant applause, right? And if you want an example of instant applause, if you're a single guy, take a picture of yourself with a baby and put it on Facebook and see what happens. <laughs> Every time I do that, hundreds of comments and likes. But the thing is that if you're going to create something of significance, you have to prioritize a true connection with an audience that is long lasting over the instant applause that you might get from some sort of silly Facebook meme. And of course, that takes us into craft. You know, craft is about longevity. So, you know, Sam Altman, who is the president at Y Combinator, he said, your greatest competitive advantage is a long-term view because so few people have one. And what he said was, you know, a lot of people come into starting a startup or whatever it is, and they think, you know, I'm gonna start this thing, I'm gonna work on it for three years, I'm gonna have my exit, and then I'm gonna be done. And I'm gonna be, you know, like the startup advisor, investor, and just be rich. And he said, really, if you think about it, if you're serious, it's a 10-year commitment. Like 10 years. And so because things are so possible so fast, people think a year is a long time to be doing something. You know, like I remember, and you may have seen this as well, in one of the Facebook forums, somebody was bitching about the fact that nobody listened to their podcast after four episodes and they didn't see what the deal was about like all the rage around podcasting. How can you take that seriously? Longevity is something that, you know, like if you're serious, you can't think of it as, okay, I'm gonna give it a year. I'm gonna, you know, one year is a minimum in terms of getting somebody to take you seriously. Here's the thing, I, I bet if you and I went through we could do this for blogs. We could do this for podcasts. We could do this for YouTube channels. Well, I'd actually like to jump in here and talk about this for podcasts. Have you heard of uh, the podcast Lore? Oh, yeah, I know of it. I've seen it show up on my featured thing. Okay, Lore is a podcast done by a guy named Aaron Mankey. 
Aaron Mankey is a guy who uh, has a bunch of side businesses, does his whole thing, but he's also, he writes horror novels. That's his like bread and butter. And what he did was he took the little stories, the side stories that wouldn't become a novel, but were amazingly interesting, put music behind them, spent literally under an hour to make these podcasts by episode like 2025, number one on iTunes, Patreon making thousands of dollars a month and now has a TV deal. But before he did that, he knew his craft because he wrote horror novels. So he spent the time and put in all of those hours and those years to get to that point to make his craft like what it was. So that's one of those undiscovered stories I think we should talk about. Yeah, I mean, you made a good point. And that's the thing. Often when you look at all of these stories, right, they appear on the surface as if suddenly they blew up overnight. You know, an example that I, I think about when it comes to this is Derek Halpern. A lot of people, you know, thought when Derek Halpern started Social Triggers, like Derek just blew up in the span of a year, like overnight. The backstory is actually a little more interesting than that because he'd already had experience building websites that had millions of visitors come to them. That makes a big difference. That's years of honing a craft. So that when you come into this thing, this guy that you're talking about, he has a very clear understanding of storytelling because he spent years doing it. It's not like it happened overnight because often we don't look beneath the surface to see what has actually led to people to where they're at. And when you start to look beyond the surface, what you see is a lot, lot longer time frame than what it might appear. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Thanks for listening and supporting the show. Let's get back to Srini Rao. I've noticed that the commitment level tends to be much lower because it's like the old iceberg analogy, right? Where all of the hard work is underneath the surface. You don't really see, for example, affiliate marketing and those like internet marketing launches and stuff like that. You see the thing when it's out and the person's doing their PR tour or a book launch, for example. You see them when they're doing their PR tour and their promo and everything. But what you don't see is them writing the freaking book. And then before that, you don't see them getting the experience to do the research to write the book. That process can take decades at the very least, it takes years. 
And then after that, you do a PR tour and people are like, well, crap, all I gotta do is write a stinking book and I can go on a media tour? All right, how fast can I write a crappy book? Think about it, I mean, like I started doing stuff on the internet in 2009 and it's 2016 now. That's eight years to get to write this book. And this is your first book? This is my first traditionally published book. And also, by the way, Aaron Mankey had 200 episodes of a podcast about working from home that has nothing to do with his actual breakout success. He was honing the craft of podcasting before he got to the one that like was a major hit. That's the other thing. Like there's so many things that you think are irrelevant that make a huge difference. So, you know, part of the reason the unmistakable creative looks the way it does and has all the artwork and all the branding is I spent, you know, seemingly unrelated 30 days teaching myself to draw. And I discovered at the end of 30 days that I can't draw worth shit. What it also taught me was to see things differently. And it also taught me how to improve at something. And so to your point, like with Aaron's podcast, the one that has nothing to do with the one that made him famous, it might seem like it had nothing to do with the one that made him famous, but it ended up being a playground for him to test ideas. And so, you know, like I self-published books, I've, you know, done a shit ton of writing, like prior to writing books, all of that stuff is constant preparation for whatever the big thing that somebody knows you about. Like, you know, I spoke with Stephen Kotler yesterday, who I'm sure I know you've, you've probably talked to. Somebody asked him, you know, hey, can I see your full CV? He said, you know, if you looked at the full CV of what Stephen Kotler has done as a writer, it's like thousands of things deep. But what do we know him for? The rise of Superman, West of Jesus, and a handful of things that have actually caught the public eye. Yeah, and that's the way that it is with probably everybody. But since most people want success really fast, they don't necessarily see the years in the making. How do we make that actionable? We need to be prepared to make a long-term commitment. But what I think the problem is, is that people go, yeah, 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 I'm prepared to make a long-term commitment. But in the back of their head, they're going, as long as I experience some immediate success so that I feel good about it. With the advice I give a lot of people is, who say, should I start a podcast? I heard the podcast. I say, do it as long as you would do it if no one was listening. Because frankly, the reality for you is going to be that for years, probably nobody's going to listen. And a lot of people, they go, oh yeah, yeah, no, that totally makes sense. That's really good advice. And some smart people go, well, I probably shouldn't podcast. And other people go, well, you know, I like it. I'll just do it until I don't like it anymore. And if that happens, if people start to listen at that point, you know, then maybe I'll continue. Maybe that'll make me like it more. But I know that there's another 90% or 80% of people that go, yeah, 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 I'll do it even if nobody was listening. And then in the back of their head, they're like, maybe that's what you need to be aware of, Jordan, but my show's gonna be huge. You know, I do the same thing because everybody comes to producer Jason and ask the same questions that they ask you. And I give them your, your reply and 95% literally just drop the ball right there. And they're like, you know what? We're out, we're done. Well, you know, you're better off doing that in some cases than, you know, doing a half-assed job, right? Because then you just add to sort of a sea of noise. I mean, there's so many things that we can talk about here, you know, in terms of commitment and in terms of seeing results. Let's talk about sort of like everybody says that you should do this thing. This is something that really kind of has been on my mind. There will be some authority figure who says, okay, everybody should be on Snapchat or, you know, somebody famous will say everybody should do this. You know, the funny thing is that people who are absolutely fantastic at what they do will abandon this thing and not be willing to go deep enough into that thing to become a master, to be average at this thing that somebody else says they should do. Like, like to me, I'm like, okay, do I wanna keep producing awesome interviews or do I wanna spend my time building an average presence on Snapchat? Which one is gonna add more value to the world? You telling me you're not on Snapchat? I am, but I don't even know what the hell to do with it. I literally look at it, I read the news on it. That's about all I do with it. We're old, that's why. Exactly. 
You little kids are so not old. Yeah. It's ridiculous. <laughs> we don't want to hear about your gout, Jason, or whatever. Hey, I turn 45 next week. Kiss my ass, you little kids, and get off my lawn. <laughs> How do we prepare ourselves for the level of commitment that's actually needed? Or is this just something where... No, no, no. There is actually a really easy way to deal with this, okay? And it comes down to visible progress and setting up metrics and goals that you can meet. If you're at zero dollars and you set a goal to have a million in like three months... Sounds good to me. Oh, You're setting yourself up for failure unless you win the fucking lottery. Like you really are because... Here's what happens, right? And this is actually not just psychological, you know, motivational mumbo jumbo. There's real science behind this. If you've never read it, for those of you listening, Shawnee Core wrote a book called The Happiness Advantage. The book is about a lot more than happiness. There's a whole show we did about it. It was great. So if that sounds good to you, check out previous episodes linked in the show notes. That will be definitely be in the show notes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he talks about two concepts. One is called activation energy and another is called success accelerants, right? So the idea behind success accelerants is that your brain makes progress towards a goal based on how close it thinks it actually is. So if you're at zero, a million is a really far way off. But if you go from zero to 50, you're much more likely to make progress towards that goal because you're much closer to it. I mean, I do this even when I'm writing a thousand words a day. Often what I will do is I will the night before copy and paste like a passage or a quote from something else. And that means I'm that much closer to a thousand words. So the progress accelerates. And the thing is that people set so many goals with metrics that are completely out of their control. As a result, they don't feel as if they're making progress. So it's about basically the most meaningful form of motivation, and I can't take credit for this, I read this in Greg McEwen's book, Essentialism, is actual progress. The problem is when you set these ridiculously out of, you know, whack targets. So for example, I'll give you another one. I have the number of MailChimp subscribers that we want to hit by the end of the year. I had a goal. And every week I print out where we're currently at and I put it on my wall. Because if I have this constant reminder that this is important, as long as that number keeps growing, I see progress every week. As long as it was bigger than it was last week, we're doing good. You know, when I have to worry is when it's smaller than it was last week. You know, I'm not going to go from what it is now to a million. That's what it's really about is, you know, tapping into this idea of success accelerants. There's another book that everybody should read if they really want to get this idea. It's called The Progress Principle by a woman named Teresa Amabili, who is a professor at Harvard. And if you are making visible and meaningful progress towards something, it's a lot easier to keep continuing with it. And you do that by setting targets that are actually achievable and blowing past them and then continually resetting those targets as opposed to thinking about things that you have no control over. It does because there's a lot of people are like, yeah, 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 create goals. But of course, you can also demotivate yourself with unrealistic goals. And you can also demotivate yourself with realistic goals that are too small and don't excite you. So you have to kind of find that balance. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if the goals are unrealistic, you know, like if you've never been to the gym, you're not going to have a six pack by the end of the week. That's ridiculous. Yeah, of course. What other pitfalls do we find? I mean, you and I were talking about this. We were all talking about this pre-show where there's kind of an echo chamber where everyone's reading the entrepreneur blogs and then everyone's listening to the entrepreneur internet businessy podcasts and then these things that are not different at all. Everyone's in that same room. And there's the same thing with real estate. I've seen that bubble online where everybody's just kind of echoing the same crap that they read on whatever real estate blog. And you end up producing something that is so not unique, so mundane and similar and vanilla that you literally cannot tell them apart. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the pitfall is really simple, actually, Jordan, to solve is to not consume the same stuff. 
you know, like diversify your inputs, because if you diversify your input, your output will change drastically. I mean, it seems simplistic, but that's really all there is to it. And do you systemize this somehow? Because of course, if I'm interested in fitness, I'm going to read a bunch of fitness stuff. Do you force yourself to consume different types of content? I systemize certain aspects of this. So like my creative process is very systematized, right? It's a thousand words a day. But the thing is, it's not rigid in the actual creation part. It's rigid in terms of the habits. Like I try to go out of my way to read books that don't typically fall into genres. And I have to work on it as well. Like I'm not as good about it as I want to be. But I know for a fact that anytime I've pushed myself out of sort of the, you know, like I know when I'm reading too much entrepreneurial stuff because I can see it happen in my writing. You know, like I don't read books about online marketing. And here's what I would say to that, right, is that most of the things about like how to are things that literally with a Google search you can answer, right? So it's like if I want to learn how to optimize a Facebook ad, I don't want to read a book about that. That would be a really boring book to read anyways. You know, that's not going to be a book that changes your life in some meaningful way. That's not going to be a book that forces you to ask deeper, more meaningful questions. You can literally just Google that when you need to find out about it. So I, I think part of it is, here's one thing that I would say. What are you genuinely curious about? And don't say you're curious about these things that everybody else is reading just because everybody else is reading them. So like, if you're curious about some like weird, obscure art form, you know, Ryan Holiday is a good example. Ryan has a, you know, immense curiosity about all sorts of subjects. Like, so he ends up taking stoic philosophy and turning it into a book that is accessible to all of us. So it really comes down to, I think, curiosity. Like, you know, like what types of movies do you watch? I mean, are you just sitting around doing nothing but consuming self-help content? Or are you like looking at entertaining content? Like when I listened to podcasts, one of the places that I went to that I thought was really inspiring was this show called Off Camera uh, with this guy named Sam Jones because he was interviewing like these really amazing celebrities and he was getting these nuggets out of them that like I didn't hear them on any other podcast. They were the kinds of things that you're like, okay, you know what? This is diversifying like the input that I am dealing with on a daily basis. Because you're right, like if you keep reading the same blogs, keep reading the same newsletters, like there are people literally, I think that probably subscribe to like 20 podcasts, listen to all of them, read everybody's newsletter and don't actually create anything. My advice to those people is to unsubscribe from all of those things, except for the art of charm and the unmistakable creative. <laughs> All joking aside, you should drastically cut off the amount of consumption you're doing because excessive consumption limits your creativity. I have a complete counterpoint to your point about excessive consumption because I listen to over 120 podcasts. Those are a, a rotating cast of characters because I want to know what's out there. I want to know dissenting opinions. I want to know what people are thinking every day, and I want to find new ideas. So... If somebody has something new that's coming out and, you know, maybe they're at the top of iTunes or they're at the top of Overcast, whatever, I want to find these people. I want to listen to it and I want to know what's going on. So I find new shows every week and I get rid of new shows every week, but I want to know what's out there. So you cannot constrain consumption, I think, just because you want to constrain your ideas and get down to that focal point on what you want to focus on. I mean, that's just where I'm at your consumption by its very nature is already diverse. So that's not a problem. Most people are consuming the same type of thing. And that's what limits their creativity. That's where their excessive consumption is at. Like, yeah, I mean, if you're consuming a diverse amount of stuff, by all means, that's a good thing. You're right, because you're being exposed to a wide variety of ideas, things that people are saying that maybe you agree with, maybe you disagree with. But most people are in almost an echo chamber of consumption that's incredibly excessive. And that's what social media has done. We've talked about this on several episodes with, yeah. you know, a lot of psychologists who are saying the same thing. It's like it becomes an echo chamber and it's like people need to branch out of that. 
Thanks for listening and supporting the show. For a list of all the amazing sponsors and discount codes, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now back to Srini Rao. I was about to say social media because literally it curates the feed. Serena, I don't know if you're aware of this, where feedback, if you click like, because I'm like, this guy's great, and I click like, it starts to show me similar content from similar people. So you end up hearing from your own friends who are also crazy gun-toting people or crazy Democrats or liberals or whatever, and then you think, geez, everybody agrees with me. So then when you hear a real dissenting opinion out in the wild, you're like, wow, you're such a weird random minority because everybody I know thinks just like me. And that's bad for creativity from what you're saying, right? Well, I, I'll confess, I use a, a plugin called the Facebook Newsfeed Obliterator, so my newsfeed is pretty much empty. I once a week check in via my phone to see what's going on. Why do you do that? Like, I know that I have the capacity to be easily distracted by things, and it helps tremendously with not spending insane amounts of time on things that I don't want to spend time on. You know, like when you're writing a book, it's what is basically known as deep work. And when you are basically browsing through newsfeed, clicking on a lot of other things like all day long, that does long term damage to your attention span. And I want to have my attention span, you know, at its fullest capacity, especially when I'm having to do something like write a 50,000 word book. Yeah. One of the points in the book, Srini, is that your goal doesn't necessarily need to be becoming the best, but your goal should be to become the only. So rather than trying to be better, you can become the only person. Therefore, competition ceases to matter. That seems kind of strange, right? So I'd love to hear your take on that because you could be the only underwater hockey player. That's a real thing, apparently. But you could be the only one of something and it depends on how much you wanna matter to other people. So there's another consideration there. If you want to do something that is actually going to reach an audience, that absolutely has to be taken into consideration. So, you know, like, there's a section in the book where I talked about how Stephen Pressfield has said, you know, about, I think, one of his books, I think it was The, the Legend of Bagger Vance, he created what he wanted to see exist in the world, and it succeeded beyond all of his wildest expectations. At the same time, it's kind of like you said, you know, like if you create something that literally has no audience. So, for example, in the book, I also cited the example where Sonia Simone once said, if you have a blog about naked mole rats, well, the amount of people who are going to read that and the potential for profit and a large audience at that is pretty damn limited because the amount of people who are interested in that is not that big. So that absolutely does have to be taken into consideration. But that being said, what do you bring to it that other people wouldn't have thought to bring to it. What do you want to instinctually add to these things? Because often we're tempted to leave parts out of our work that we would be better off leaving in because those are the things that give it the edge that it has or the thing that makes it what it ends up being. You know, I mean, if you're a musician, that could be, you know, a certain solo section that you think about cutting out, but might actually be the thing that makes it. If you're an author, maybe that's a chapter you are scared to write, but by writing it, you actually, you know, create an emotional connection with that one section of the book. So, you know, this can go on in, in, in so many different ways. But yes, absolutely, if you're serious about reaching an audience, you can't ignore the fact that this has to go out into the world and to interact with other people. You also bring up the mental health and support issue for people who are creative. Why is this a tenant of your book? It seems kind of out of left field. I don't necessarily think it's out of left field because the thing is, like, when you're doing big, big, ambitious things, inevitably you're going to get your ass handed to you at some point or another, in some way or another, right? I don't imagine, Jordan, you woke up, you know, 10 years ago, you started The Art of Charm, and it was just a smooth ride all the way to where you're at today. It's ridiculous even hearing that. Somewhere along the way, something shitty probably happened. 
Yeah, I mean, you can kind of count on it. It's like clockwork. Something shitty has happened pretty much every year, every other year, something major has gone on where we're like, OMG, this is awful, kill me now. We have this idea in our heads that there's going to be this day when we're gonna wake up, we're gonna be rich, famous, all our problems will be solved and we'll never have to deal with any bullshit again, right? And so in surfing, there's a section of the ocean known as the impact zone. And in the impact zone, you basically get your ass handed to you like wave after wave after wave after wave on the head and it feels like it's never going to stop and that you're never going to come up for air. And because of that, it sucks. And the only way to not be in the impact zone is to not surf, like to not be in the water. Like it's an inevitable part of what you do. And so the thing is that, you know, when you're doing all these big things, they will push you to your limits. You know, psychologically, they will push you into really challenging spots mentally. Part of, you know, what we have to do is learn to manage our psychology during all of those periods. And that's where, you know, things like support come in. Because, you know, one of my mentors said, he's like, your problems don't go away. What changes is your capacity to handle them. And each time that you take a massive wave on the head, you know, metaphorically, the next time you're there, it's not nearly as bad because you've been through it before. You know, your problems change in size. Like they become different kinds of problems. I mean, you and I were talking about some of our problems earlier, which we won't mention on the air, but like a year ago, those would have actually been nice problems to have. Like we weren't even thinking about stuff like that. Yeah, of course. No, I mean, the problems become higher quality, but they're still problems, especially if you're running a business and you're trying to pay your rent. Yeah, exactly. So having the support systems in place make sense for that reason. I mean, how do you develop those? Actually, a lot of people, entrepreneurs especially, do themselves a big disservice when it comes to this. And I see this a lot with internet marketers and thought leaders. They do things like where they lie about numbers, they lie about sales, they spin things weird, where they're like, yeah, this launch, and I got a million dollars, and they don't realize they paid 1.1 million to do the launch and all this stuff. So you can't really get support because it would involve being like, the reason I'm broke is this, and so basically I'm full of smoke and mirrors, and and they don't want to do that. So you end up isolating yourself even more because you've got this brand based on fluff and can't reach out because you can't tell people what's really wrong because it basically says you have to out yourself. Yeah, you really do, and that's the flaw of doing that to begin with is you're setting yourself up for that, right? You know, like, I don't teach people how to make money online because I don't feel that I've, you know, like, I'm not qualified to say, okay, here's how you make a million dollars online because I've never made a million dollars online. So I'm not gonna claim to be able to teach something that I don't know how to do. There's a lot of different things that, you know, you can say about this. I mean, first, one of the things is that we have a really, really sort of insidious cultural narrative that encourages exactly what you're talking about, right? We're encouraged to put up this face of I'm killing it, I'm crushing it, life is awesome, when really you might be thinking about killing yourself. And, and you know, it's really sad because it's not until something like an Aaron Schwartz happens that we get woken up to the reality of this. Like, is that what it takes? And it turns out that this situation, this like issue with mental health, with depression and, and, you know, doing, you know, entrepreneurial things is actually much more common than we think. Like many, many high performing people deal with it. And, you know, I think it's becoming more and more acceptable to talk about it. But our unwillingness to seek out help in these situations, I think, is, is really has what cost us dearly because we're forced to put on this facade for the world. And, you know, yeah, there are situations in which it's not appropriate for you to air this laundry publicly, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't go seek help, like going and seeing a therapist. You know, like, I think maybe the big thing that came to me from going to a therapist was like, holy shit, I should have done this like years ago. I like, personally, I think everybody should go through it. It's actually a really sort of eye-opening experience to get a lot of shit out on the table that you can't tell anybody else because 
what you will get is a completely unbiased, completely objective perspective from somebody who one, wants to see you get better, but two, is not gonna tear you down in your moments when you need them to be supportive. I think that's hugely important, and not only that, but if you found that you've painted yourself into the corner, it's still worth outing yourself if you need the help, because it's certainly not worth suffering the consequences. No, no, it's not. It's really not. And the thing is, those consequences, you know, they will start to affect every other area of your life. Like, it's so hard to do all the things that people that you've profiled on this show do if they are not in a proper state of mind. Like, those things take being in a very, very healthy psychological state. One thing I'd like to reconcile just before we wrap here is we talked about avoiding the echo chamber. We talked about making sure we have diverse inputs and, and being unique and being original. But what about taking cues from other artists and other creatives, you know, finding inspiration? How do we kind of reconcile being original with like, oh, but I like that thing too? Yeah, okay, so I will, I will echo something that I had, think had a profound impact on the way I went about you know, looking at other art forms. You know, Eric Wall told me once, he said, live music has engaged participants, keynote speaking has passive consumers. There's room to be explored in how you bridge the gap between those two things. And if you look at Eric Wall and you do a search for him on YouTube, you guys can link that up in the show notes, you'll see he mixes like graffiti art, you know, painting, music, as well as a keynote talk, which is not what we would typically expect of a keynote talk. You know, to me, it was kind of like, okay, well, why not borrow from visual art and bring that into a business-based website? Like, that could be cool. Like, you could do a lot of stuff with that. You know, why not borrow from the world of movies? Like, I happen to have this love for all things visual, so that's why I wanted to create an animated series based on the podcast. Like, I looked at other art forms and it's like, okay, well, this is possible in one art form. Why not do it in the world of podcasting? So, you know, that idea that you're blending things from business and other art forms together. Like, so when we did an event, you know, I mean, you know this because you've seen some of this stuff, we didn't treat it like an event. We didn't plan a conference. We wanted to plan a theatrical performance with the content for the conference underlaid underneath a theatrical performance. Like, the content was still there, but the fact that it was a theatrical performance made the whole thing 10 times more engaging than it would have been otherwise. You know, like, okay, usually what you get is one of those crappy banners in front of the hotel room with the speaker's headshot on it, Well, we didn't do that. We actually made X-Men style, you know, movie posters of each speaker. So when people walked into the room, it felt as if they were walking into a theater. Those are the kinds of things that really, I think, come from just saying, okay, why not? Like, why would we not do those things? Like, who says that we have to do things all these other ways? Another example I'll give you. So right now I'm doing a closing for a keynote. And, you know, if you look at dialogue in movies, there's a great example of this is if you've ever seen the movie Meet Joe Black, there's a number of sort of very poetic monologues. And if you listen to the monologue, you will notice that music plays a big role in each one of those monologues. And if you imagine it without the music, the impact would be gone. And so, you know, I'm doing this closing for a keynote and I thought, well, what if I actually underlaid a track under this last section of the talk? Like how much more emotional will that section be? And it turns out a hell of a lot more. Those are kinds of like actual examples of borrowing from other art forms. Trini, thanks so much for your time, man. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to make sure you deliver to the AOC fam? Um, you know, if, if you guys uh, like podcasts and you like Jordan, I mean, he's probably mentioned it in his ads. So uh, unmistakable creative. We have bank robbers, drug dealers, performance psychologists, you name it. You know, we probably had him as a guest. Got it. Thanks so much, man. Great work. Cool. 
Some good stuff in there. Sometimes it's hard to balance being creative with borrowing too much from others and not borrowing enough or making something so unique that no one cares about it. Serena does a good job of balancing that. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Serena on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as the other resources mentioned on the show, including his podcast and book, The Unmistakable Creative. You can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the cheat sheet for this episode. We'll link to the show notes right on your phone. I also post tons of stuff on Twitter that never really makes it to the show, articles, insights, other ways to engage with me and producer Jason. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. Our boot camps, our live programs here in Los Angeles, details on that at theartofcharm.com as well. And remember, we sell out a few months in advance, so if you're thinking about it, get in touch now, plan ahead a little bit, and get a little bit of a head start on boot camp. Also, don't forget about our social capital challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or in the U.S. text charmed to 33444. That's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. It's all about improving your networking and connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, some drills and exercises to help you move forward. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. Check it out, theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed in the U.S. to 33444. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at the Art of Charm Podcast dot com.